Now turn with me please to the Old Testament scriptures. Turn with me to Genesis chapter uh, 19. Genesis chapter 19. These are well-known words, but I'm afraid they're, they're greatly misunderstood words. Genesis chapter 19, and we'll commence reading at verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and they did and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the men from every quarter. And they called unto Lot, and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him. And said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them, and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Amen. We'll end our opening reading here at verse 11. I give the title for this message tonight to Christianization of Sodom. Some of you might have wondered what really is all of that about, but it's an examination really uh, of the arguments by the pro-homosexuals in Christendom that have sought to revise all of the ancient texts that pertain uh, to homosexuality. I think it's tragic to see once faithful churches that once subscribed to the historic views of the Bible on human sexuality and on marriage jettison biblical and confessional teaching and even in the UK in the past decade, there's been, there's been a sea change. I think that change has been so dramatic, it has bypassed us as the evangelical church. 
I remember when I came back from Kenya, one of the first, well, we'll say topical messages that I preached on here and on along was same-sex unions. Can anybody even remember that now? The same-sex unions. And of course we were told this would suffice. Nobody would want anything more. And of course it was just the harbinger to same-sex marriage and to the turning upside down of the norms not only in society, but even in the broad professing church itself. Already in liberal, and I'm going to use those terms just as I mean them, in liberal apostate Christendom, there has been a sea change. The Anglican churches in Scotland and in Wales have adopted what they call same-sex marriage. And I'm going to use those terms over the next uh, few weeks because... Those are the terms that are in vogue, but you will know there's no such thing in reality before God as same-sex marriage. It's an anathema to Almighty God. But that is the term that is used. And they jettisoned with a few votes of their synods and with their conferences nearly two millennia of biblical teaching to accept uh, the woke culture of the day and age that we live in. And then the Presbyterian Church in Scotland voted to accept same-sex marriage in May 2021. This was the church that sent over the chaplains to Ireland in the 1641 rebellion and from whose ministers the, the great church of John Knox was formed the first presbytery in Ireland. It was so dramatic what they did. The PCI in Ireland, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, had no alternative but to cut off fraternal relationships with the church in Scotland. That's how bad it was. And statistics show that the Scottish church, it's, a, it's one minister I read, he stated about them, that it is just the Scottish church now, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, the Kirk of Scotland as they call them, they, they see success in managing decline. And over the past decade, they have saw a dramatic decline in their numbers. Not only do they have same-sex marriages now within their, their church buildings, the very place that Knox stood in and thundered forth the word of God, in that place, same-sex marriages have been performed. It nearly seems sacrilegious if we believe in such a thing as holy ground. But I think you know what I mean by that tonight. Not only do they perform the marriages, but they have same-sex ministers living in same-sex partnerships in the, in the local manses in Scotland. And would that explain, I think it explains a great deal, why Scotland is the wilderness, spiritually speaking, that it is. It's a spiritual wilderness. The Methodist Church in Great Britain, founded by the, the famous fiery uh, evangelist John Wesley, voted recently to accept same-sex marriage. But they went further than that because it was a typical ecumenical fudge. So they reaffirmed their belief that marriage is between uh, a man and a woman. But at the same time, they accepted uh, two people can marry who are of the same sex. So with one hand they accepted, which was the biblical standard and the confessional norm, and on the other hand they have embraced, no, but we also accept same-sex marriage. So it's just a fudge 
to keep whatever evangelicals that are left in the Methodist Church hanging on by the skin of their teeth. I can't think of any church really more apostate than the Methodist Church in Great Britain. The Methodist Church in Ireland is separate, but it's just full of ecumenism and liberalism as much as the church is in Britain. But it, is, it has a separate conference and uh, they have not voted on same-sex marriage or to uh, perform same-sex marriages. Jesus' strongest words, of course, were always for the religious leaders who abandoned the biblical uh, position. We should remember that. His strongest condemnation was not for the world. His strongest condemnation was for the religious elite of the day. He said about the Laodicean church, it was so bad they made him sick. And if we could just take that metaphor, I am sure the Methodist church of Great Britain makes God sick with its sin and is under the curse of Almighty God. Now those are strong words from me. and You're not used to hearing such strong words. But the more I've I've studied it and the more I've looked at it, the more I see just the degradation and the deep apostasy that's embedded in our land eh, through the embracing of something that is anathema to Almighty God. At a recent conference of the Anglican bishops in, in Lambeth, Anglican bishops, hundreds of them from around the world gathered. Now remember, each Anglican eh, country, each Anglican church is a separate identity, so they all come together and the Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby he moderates and chairs those meetings you have churches like Uganda you have churches like Nigeria, you have churches like uh, uh, Kenya and they are really evangelical and it's a, well, I, even when I was back in Kenya it was amazing to hear Anglican men come into the bookshop and how they spoke and how they preached and they, they were really in touch with the Lord and yet they were, in, they were within Anglicanism because our view of Anglicanism is something very different to what's happening in Africa and some Asian countries this day. So Welby knew that if he wanted to maintain those evangelical churches in the Anglican communion, they would have to come up with some sort of an agreement because the liberal churches in the West and in Canada and America already perform same-sex marriages, although the Anglican church in England to this point it does not. And so they came up with a typical ecumenical fudge. They, uh, like the, the Methodists in many ways, they reaffirmed that marriage was between a man and a woman but Welby said in the closing statement they would not act against uh, churches which performed same-sex marriages. So just like the, the Methodist church, it wasn't the scriptural approach, it was the, the pragmatic approach just to keep everybody on board for now. The Church of England's going through a consultation paper. I know I had to really staggering unbelief in that consultation paper on human sexuality they could not define biologically what a woman is can you imagine that they couldn't give a biological definition of what a woman is because they've swallowed the woke views of the day and age that we live in if you if you even uh, go on to the bbc website they, they say there's some 200 different sexual identities this is just 
is gibberish. It defies all logic and it defies all human realities. Here in Northern Ireland, we are thankful uh, that the main uh, line churches at denominational level, despite all their compromises on other issues, have not yet accepted same-sex marriage. The pressure is on, no doubt. We had the Presbyterian Church in Ireland just, was it last year, the year before, uh, they voted uh, to say that same-sex couples could not be married in the church, nor could their children be baptized. And you and I would think, well, that's obvious, but to many within Presbyterianism, it wasn't so obvious, and it caused a great furore. And it, it, it caused that many of the liberals did leave the Presbyterian church because of their stand for traditional marriage. In the Church of Ireland, there are a parachurch groups that are advocating for change, we had the Reverend Andrew Rodding in Tyrone. If you remember, he supported the, 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 gay, uh, the, the gay pride parade in Cookstown over the past few years. But it was very significant that he had to resign. And he has resigned his position. But at the time, what really struck me was uh, the church hierarchy had nothing to say to him. They had no rebuke for him. They had no chastisement for him. They had no discipline for him. He just resigned because he felt they weren't going at a speedy enough pace in the change in the Church of Ireland. I think you need to watch that one. There, there, will, be, there will be further uh, news on that up ahead. On the 13th of January 2020, same-sex marriage was legalised in Northern Ireland. Strangely enough, not from Stormont, where it was voted on, I think, some three times undefeated, but it was legislated from Westminster. As abortion was legislated from Westminster. It calls into question, brethren and sisters, really, our own political ideologies and thinkings. Our presbyter at that time reaffirmed our loyalty to the biblical teaching of marriage. But then COVID came. And all the ensuing issues, I think, have blurred our collective memories of that infamous decision. The question can be asked, really, what happened? What happened that made same-sex marriage so favoured and so permissible now within professing Christendom in the UK. What happened? Because it's happened in the last decade and a half. Well, many professing churches had been infiltrated for years before that by those who rejected the sole authority of Scripture. Once you step outside that parameter and you say the Bible is no longer your sole authority and faith and practice, well, anything can be written now into what you're doing. But if you say this book is what I believe and the guidance in this book guides uh, uh, what I do in life, then it all becomes a very different story. But for many, many decades prior to all what I'm talking about, there had been Bible-denying liberals within all of those mainstream churches. 
The ungodly world will always favor sin and act in rebellion. I have no doubt if there was a referendum here in Northern Ireland tomorrow morning on same-sex marriage or abortion or whatever, it would be overwhelmingly endorsed. I have no doubt about that. But you would expect something different from the professing Christian church. Many professing churches, in leaving aside the Bible, have left themselves open to all of the woke culture that is so popular today and so embraced today. And churches today do not like to be different from the world. They want to be the same as the world and they want to be in tandem with the world. Thus they quickly embrace the ideologies of the world. There are men such as Matthew Vines, I'm only giving him out as an example, because he professes to be reformed. He does profess to believe in the uh, authority of the Bible as the word of the living God. But he wrote a very influential book, God and the Gay Christian. He's a great advocate on social media, and he comes across ever so uh, smoothly and softly. You know, when they put a fundamentalist on or a Bible-believing Christian, it's always Sunday they like to caricature us, angry and, you know, uh, shouting down the, the, the microphone at somebody. But here's a man, he sits back, he's, he's so relaxed, he puts his arguments one by one, and he tells all of these wonderful uh, emotional stories, and the world just laps it up, and so does the church. And they don't look any further than that. And many churches have been taken in. His view is that he supports uh, monogamist same-sex marriages. So his argument is, God allows people who love each other the same privileges as heterosexual people. So as long as they stay together and are loyal to each other, there is nothing wrong with monogamist same-sex marriages, as long as they're committed and faithful one to the other. And he's one of the best-known, what we call, revisionists. So he has taken all of these texts and he has put a, a revision on them. Now, we, we know here in Northern Ireland what revision is, and we see it all the time, the rewriting of history. And we see Sinn Féin doing it all the time. They rewrite history. A few weeks ago, we had the commemoration of, of Bloody Friday in Belfast when they bombed the city and people were, were slaughtered just over the city. And the IRA was written out of it. It was as if they had no part in it. Why? At the behest, at the behest of those who were funding it and at the behest of those who didn't want that part to be made known. History is being rewritten. Theology is being rewritten. But we can't allow it to happen. We cannot allow it to happen. We have young ones coming on behind us. We have a church to protect we have parameters to secure. And I know we are no more uh, invulnerable than anybody else. And we know all about our vulnerabilities. But unless we know what these people are doing and know how to answer them, they will continue to Christianize Sodom. 
And they will try to portray Sodom as a very pleasant place to go and stay instead of the place that was under the curse of God. Vine alleges there are only six passages which address uh, homosexuality and what he calls sexual orientation, same-sex sexual orientation. And he calls them the clubber passages. So these are the passages that fundamentalists will clubber uh, same-sex couples and, and homosexuals with. Now that in itself is an error, of course, because you can't divide one scripture from another scripture. For example, the Father is not going to teach a truth that the Son or the Holy Spirit is going to disagree on. So if it's taught in one part of the Bible and can be proved from one part of the Bible, you can rest assured the rest of the Bible is in tandem and in agreement with it. And because the like of vine says there's only six passages that are against same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction, and we'll come to explain that just as we go along. Uh, then there are some Christians and they say, well, it's really of little consequence, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. But I, I want to show you that it does matter. And if we miss the importance of it, we will, we will rue the day that we closed our eyes to it. So those six uh, passages are, according to Vine, I, I'm going to bring in lots of others, but according to Vine, it's Genesis 16, the Levitical Holiness Code, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, and then Paul's uh, narrative, Romans 1.26.27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 1 Timothy 1.8-11. Now, when I started off this, I thought I'll, I'll do it all in one night. But the more I read about it, the more I studied it, I felt, am I doing a PhD in this or am I doing just a study for one night on it? So I'm afraid it's going to be stretched out over a few nights because I think it would be too heavy and too much all just for for one evening. So we'll go and look at, at three of those texts tonight, hopefully. The ones in Genesis and the ones in Leviticus and then that will prepare us for the New Testament up ahead. So go to Genesis chapter 19, God's judgment upon the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, liberal apostate Christendom today does not believe that chapter 19 is a direct reference to a homosexuality or sodomy. That's where the word comes from. The very uh, sexual act of sodomy comes from the name of this city. But rather, uh, it states that it was due to a lack of hospitality, inhospitable people in Sodom. But the judgment that God poured out upon the cities of the plain was not because people uh, were inhospitable. I, I thought about that when I was studying this over the past few days, and I thought about that time when the disciples were going down to Jerusalem from Galilee, and they had to go through Samaria. And do you remember that uh, the Lord Jesus, he wanted them to stay in one of the villages during the night on their way and the Samaritans wouldn't let them because uh, there, is, there was no uh, comings and goings between the Jews and the Samaritans. Some of the, the, the sons of thunder, James and John, they said, Lord will call fire down out of heaven upon them for their inhospitality, inhospitable uh, manner. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? He just moved them on. Don't worry about it. He said, well, find another place to stay. Basically, that's what happened. So I thought about that with, the, with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
the Lord Jesus was not going to judge these cities because uh, they didn't offer adequate hospitality to those that had come to visit it. Not a bit. The cities were equated with extreme sinfulness and wickedness. We see that in other parts of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 1 and 9, Isaiah 1 and 10, Isaiah 3 and 9, Jeremiah 23, 14, Ezekiel 16, 44 to 54. Let me just read you out those first two references. Isaiah 1 and 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto to Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of God, ye people of Gomorrah. So God was uh, comparing the sin of Judah to the great wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. And he's addressing them. He said, because the wickedness, the wickedness your, your, your wickedness is as great as Sodom and Gomorrah. That was quite an epitaph that they had. They were forever identified with divine judgment, not just with extreme wickedness, but with divine judgment. In Deuteronomy 29:23, we read, And the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that is not sown nor birth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. There are other similar references, Isaiah 13, 19, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 49, 18, Isaiah 50, uh, Jeremiah 50, 40, Lamentations 4, 6, Amos 4, 11, so on. As I look out at our land, I, I see a land of great wickedness and I see a land ripening for judgment more and more every day, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, the Saviour also referenced God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the people are of Christ's day, they were warned to flee from the example of these cities. What did the Lord say to them uh, in Matthew ten fourteen and 15? Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words uh, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What a comparison. What a comparison at the place that rejects the gospel and the message of the gospel. It will be more tolerable for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Could on along be written in there. Right to the end of the New Testament, these in famous cities, they're, they're thrown up uh, as a means to warn the ungodly. If you want to warn a child of some danger, you might say, well, well look what happened to him. And this is what's happening right throughout the Bible. Uh, the Holy Spirit is saying, look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a warning to you. Stand back from what you're doing. Repent of what you're doing. We see that in Second uh, Peter 2 and verse 6. I, I think of that uh, spiritual comparison in Revelation 11 and 8. Uh, we read, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Uh, so very clearly to me, these warnings, they weren't all given in such dramatic form just because of lack of hospitality. They were because Sodom and Gomorrah had indulged in such heinous sin 
that those who committed the sin were set forth as an example of God's eternal wrath that was poured out upon them. As we go back to Genesis chapter 19, the storyline doesn't start there, does it? It starts actually in chapter 18. Remember how the Lord, in one of his pre-incarnate appearances, came to Abraham in the plain of Mamre with two angels, and they had come to visit Sodom. Sodom could have been spared. They had come to visit it. But we read in verse 20 to 22 what the Lord said about it. The Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know it. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. That's the two angels. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now Abraham knew what was happening. And I, I want us all to take encouragement from this tonight. But Abraham stood before the Lord to pray for Sodom and for the souls that were in it. And I think we should take great encouragement from that this evening. Sodom was prayed over. And those that were engaged in their practices of Sodom were prayed over. And God gave them opportunity after opportunity to repent and to seek his face and to call upon his name. He said to Abraham, if I find even ten that are righteous in it, I'll spare the whole lot of them. That's common grace. In verse 1, 2, 3, when these strangers came to uh, the city of Sodom, Lot was in the gate. He was one of the, the, the judges now. He, had, he got possession. He's a righteous man. That's what the New Testament tells us about him. But uh, he got position. But he knew the danger these men were in. I do not believe he knew there were angels. He just saw them as men coming into the city. And he knew if they were to stay in the open air in the street. Uh, and not in some safe dwelling place. What would be happen? What would happen to them uh, during the night? And so he insisted. He insisted that they come. To his house and to stay with him. And notice in verse 2. He said you can rise up early in the morning and go on your way. He didn't want anybody else to know they were there. Because he knew the jeopardy that they were in. Lot knew the type of place that he lived in. Ruled in. Worked in. Traded in. And he, he really wanted to uh, save these men from, from the fate that, that would have befallen them. Verse 4 tells us after they had eaten that night their supper, the men of the city, both young and old, young and old, a corrupt place, they surrounded Lot's house and they demanded that Lot would bring the men out that they might know them. Now there are some revisionists and they say, oh, they just wanted to make friends with them. They, they just wanted to be hospitable to them. They just now wanted to make up for their for their lack of hospitality with them. But that's not what the Bible's teaching us. Verse 5 is quite explicit. It said they wanted to know them. Now we've come across that phrase before. In the book of Genesis. Because it is a euphemism for sexual knowledge. In Genesis chapter 4 we read how... Adam knew Eve. 
So this was the intimacy of marriage. And she was able to bear children because Adam knew her. And it's exactly the same here. They wanted to know them. This was gang rape at its very worst. Lot refused to bring out these men. And they, they, he, he bartered with them. Isn't it awful that a righteous man could offer his daughters, his virgin daughters, to these men? But I think part of the reason why uh, he was going to barter his daughters uh, with these men was because perhaps he believed that the men wouldn't be interested in his daughters. You see, the, the culture of Sodom had impacted the thinking of Lot. That's what I believe what happened here. This is a horrendous part of, of Scripture. The mob, of course, became more inflamed and they were going to break down the door. They, they were going to do Lot harm. But the angels brought him in and the angels blinded those men and they couldn't do any further harm or damage that night. Now, revisionists insist that the sin of Sodom was not sexual. And to back up their claim, and this is where they stump a whole lot of Christians, turn over with me there, please. I'm just trying to show you all these counter-arguments. They, they refer people to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. There's a long passage there. You can uh, read it for yourself. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 to verse 50. Ezekiel 15, verse 49, it talks here about the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. So the revisionists, of course, they interpret this to be lack of social justice. They, they saw the needy in the street, but although they had plenty, they didn't uh, give anything to the needy. And they take this back to, to Genesis 19, and they say Genesis 19 has nothing to say or to do with same-sex relationships, and especially same-sex marriage. But a closer look at the context of Ezekiel 16, when somebody throws a verse like that up to you, do not be bulked by it. Do not be put off by it. But just read what goes before and what goes after. Always read the context. And so when we look at the context, it reveals that the, the sin of Sodom was more than just a lack of hospitality and social justice. The word abomination used in verse 50 is but one of the abominations referenced in verse 47. Yes, there were other abominations in Sodom, there's no doubt about that. It was a wicked place. The, the whole thinking of the society was corrupted just as much as our society is corrupted today. Just as much. We're just a little tiny remnant. But there was one abomination that was referenced above others. And this one abomination 
is the very same word that God uses in the Levitical Holiness Code to describe to describe Sodom. Sodom had a reputation for its sensual, immoral lifestyle. And that reputation lived for, for millennium afterwards. How do I know? Well, remember the little epistle of Jude in verse 7. It says about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. So that is sexual activity outside of marriage. And going after strange flesh. Again, a euphemism. The, the AV, or King James Authorized Version, is so tactful because the translators of it were so tactful in, in, in describing all of these things. And that is why even in church, uh, I wouldn't talk about this subject on Sunday with all of our children, etc., in the meeting. But I think it's something you need to talk to your children about. You need to address with your children and your young people. You need to warn them. You say, well, what, what, really, what's happening? Well, when we see young children being taken to libraries and drag queens, reading them their stories, this, brethren and sisters, is all just to desensitize parents to what is going on. When we see, for example, children in playgroups getting little innocent books to read about Billy, for example, with two daddies or two penguins. Billy, I forget what the name of the dog, but the two penguin books, and they're looking after the little baby together, but there are two males looking after the baby together. There's a lot of strange flesh that our society has given itself over to. Some commentators have tried to explain away the severity of the judgment. Some I've read have even tried to uh, intimate that, the, uh, that, yes, it was judged, but it was because they tried to sexually abuse angels. But those men didn't know that those visitors were angels. There's nothing to say that they knew they were angels. That they were heavenly visitors. They were just new men that nobody had been with before and they wanted to be with them. It just was as crude and as base as that. Now, the scene I know is set very much in contrast with two people of the same sex entering into a consensual committed relationship. And I'm not trying to draw any comparisons, but it's the practice that is condemned. The men of the city were infected. They, they were consumed by it. This was a city that was prayed over. Abraham was praying for it. This was a city that could have been spared. God was ready to spare it. But it was given over. There was nothing but judgment for it now. Why? Because it was a perversion of God's creative plan. Just always keep to the basics. That's what I say in my ministry. Just keep to the basics. I let others deal with all their complexities. But if I keep to the basics and understand the basics, I'll be doing very well. 
And the, the basics of God's created plan is that God created them male and female. And he brought Eve to Adam and he united them together in marriage. And we'll come to that next week, how Jesus commented on that in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. This was a perversion of God's procreative order. Genesis 2, verse 24, where it talks about that oneness of flesh. And of course, that oneness of flesh intimates uh, that intimacy between Adam and Eve, that special design. They were Uh, They complemented each other. The physical design of each other complemented each other. They were meant to come together because they complemented each other. Bar a lot of scientific juggling, same-sex couples cannot produce seed. It also was a perversion of the gospel promise. Remember that gospel promises of Genesis 3 verse 15 that the seed of it talks about the seed of the woman and what better way to kill the seed and thus the promised Messiah than for men to be with men and women to be with women. This was an attack. An attack on God, on his truth, on his mercy, on his grace. And all the revisionists like Matthew Vine and all the other so-called Christian apologists who line up to explain away these passages, I, I believe, I do believe that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're deceived and they are deceiving. Let's turn, or maybe we'll not turn, but I have a whole, a, maybe a lot of notes, three pages of notes in Leviticus 18. Would you look at that just for a moment with me? We'll come to it next week. I'll not go there. I think it's too heavy. Just all for one night. Leviticus 18, verse 22. The book of Leviticus, we have to admit, is a difficult book and many Christians shy away from it. But the book of Leviticus proclaims the holiness of God. In our authorised version, there are some, some 95 matches to the word holiness in the book of Leviticus. When you read the book of Leviticus, you're reading about the holiness of God how we approach a holy God and how we live in front of a holy God. Remember that. It's all about God's holiness. So let's look at Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 18.22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. And then chapter 20 verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death and their blood shall be upon them. There's much good material has been written on this already by uh, very eminent men, very learned scholars, such as uh, Kevin DeYoung. I don't know where any of you appreciate the writings of Kevin DeYoung, but I think he's a very good writer. And also James White, there 
obviously things about both men that uh, we couldn't agree with, and I'm sure there's an awful lot they wouldn't agree with me on, but on this issue they are very, very good, and I would commend their, their books to you. They're in-depth studies. And I'm just going to leave with you two questions, and we'll discuss them next week. You think about them. What actually is the sin forbidden here in Leviticus 18, 22 and 22 and 20 and verse 13? <clears throat> and if, as Christians today, we are under grace and not under the law, are these uh, prohibitions even binding on us today? Are they? So somebody was to put that to you, some modern trendy revisionist who professes to be a Christian, even a Calvinist, and uh, has all the right terminology for you, what would you say to them and how would you explain it? Because that will be the basis of our study next week with you. Okay. I think that's enough.